you know, just to recap a little bit, uh, we, we all know that the Philippian um, uh, epistle was written by Paul to this church in, uh, in Philippi, and this was one of the churches that Paul had, <coughs> excuse me, that Paul had started uh, or had fo- formed on his second missionary journey. And uh, it started with the conversion of this lady, Lydia, in the city of uh, Philippi, and uh, then followed by that, the salvation of the Philippian jailer. And uh, so a church was established, and then Paul went back on his subsequent missionary journeys. And then later on, as Paul is sitting in prison, he writes these four epistles to the various churches that, that he had uh, formed, the Ephesians, the Colossians, and then uh, a personal letter to Philemon, and of course to the church in, in Philippi. And uh, in all of these letters that Paul is writing, he's addressing certain concerns uh, and problems that the church there would have been going through, the, the challenges that they were facing. And the church of the Philippians in uh, the, the assembly in Philippi in particular was a, a fairly good uh, assembly. I mean, it wasn't like the Corinthians who had who were, uh, you know, in a very messy situation and had a lot of issues in their practice and in their... Uh, in, in the way they were conducting their meetings and in terms of immorality and all these kind of things. When we read through Philippians, we don't see those type of problems. We do see that they have some suffering. We do see that maybe, um, you know, there is a little bit of a problem in unity and we'll, we'll see that again today as Paul addresses a specific uh, situation there of lack of unity or disunity among some believers uh, but beyond that, it is a letter of encouragement. It is a letter to encourage them to, to, to walk more closely, to watch their, their walk in the Lord. Uh, and, um, and, and Paul is giving them these, these various instructions. Uh, and there are many themes that are running through this, um, this epistle. And I just want to hit on, you know, and, and, and some of these themes, they're not sort of organized very neatly. Uh, you know, he sort of hits one and then goes out to something else and then comes back. To the theme, so I'll just sort of try to hit on uh, five or six things that I noticed that Paul talks about here. You know, there is a theme of thankfulness and the pursuit of excellence in the Christian life, and we find that uh, as we look in chapter one and verse three, he says, "I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy." Verse six. Um, being confident of this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you will be com- will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Uh, and then uh, verse 9, uh, and this I pray, and this is Paul's prayer for the believers in Philippi. He says, this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may approve the things that are excellent that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So we see this theme of the pursuit of excellence in the Christian life uh, and, and the hope that the, 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 the surety that God would complete the work of sanctification that he had started with him. And then again when we come to uh, today we'll be looking at chapter 4. And verse 8, he again comes back to this theme of excellence. He says, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. So again, this theme of excellence in the Christian life, focusing on things that are, that are good, focusing on uh, on the things to, to approve the things that are excellent and being sincere till the day of Christ, till the Lord returns. So really focusing on our current life as believers, as we live on the earth, anticipating and waiting for the return of the Lord. How are we to live? We are to, to focus on the things that are excellent, the things that are virtuous, the things that are of good report. So we see this theme throughout the book of the Philippians. Second theme we see is one of the sovereignty of God in the midst of suffering and the sovereignty of God in matters of death and life. And we see that in the second, uh, mid, mid and second part of uh, chapter 1, verse 12. He says, I want you to know, brethren, that the things, this is chapter 1 and verse 12, the things which happened to me have actually turned out 
for the furtherance of the gospel. So Paul here says that God is sovereign even in my suffering, in my imprisonment, that because I've been imprisoned, I want you to know that these things have have happened, uh, have actually turned out for the good. They have turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, that even the whole palace guard has come to hear the gospel. Uh, and, um, and, and the brethren have become more confident because I am in chains, because I am suffering. You know, become more confident and more bold to speak the word without fear. We see that in verse uh, 14. And then in verse 21 um, and to, through 23, he says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, that will, this will mean fruit from my labor, yet what I shall choose... I cannot tell, for I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. So Paul here very eloquently speaks about this battle that he's having in his mind between whether he should live on and be of benefit to the church and to the believers in Philippi and other places, or his desire to be with the Lord, his burning desire uh, to to be in the to die and to be in the presence of the Lord and he's speaking as a prisoner not knowing as he goes faces trial whether he'll be freed or whether he will be um, uh, put to death uh, but he says that I desire so much to die and to be with Christ so the sovereignty of God not only in suffering but also in matters of death and life that God has a purpose and that we as Christians you know this life is not the end death is not the end but rather Death just ushers us into the presence of our Lord and what a far more fulfilling state that is or should be for a believer. And yet very often as we looked at when we were studying that passage, you know, very often we love our lives so much, you know, that that we lose sight of that, that really we belong with the Lord, that we ought to have that burning desire to be with the Lord in his presence. So there's that theme of the sovereignty of God. Thirdly, we see throughout the epistle this theme about of walking worthy of the gospel, of working out our salvation, about this whole matter of sanctification, that as, you know, sanctification is the process that we go through that begins at the point of, of, of redemption, the point of regeneration, the point of salvation, when we go from uh, death to life, and it goes on all the time until we are in the presence of the Lord, when we, have, we are glorified and have that glorified body. Basically, the time that we are here on this earth, if we go to um, uh, chapter 1 and verse 27, he starts talking about this. He says, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And then he again talks about it in chapter 2 and verse 12. He says, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. We see that this process of sanctification, it involves us and it involves God. It requires us to work it out, to do certain things, to to, to build certain behaviors in our life, certain disciplines, so that we may walk worthy of the gospel. And again, in chapter 2 and verse uh, 15, he says uh, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Why do we have to live a certain way as believers? Why do we have to have a walk that is worthy of the gospel? It is because we have this obligation, we have this duty to be a light uh, to, 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 to live without fault in the midst of this crooked generation, perverse generation, among whom we are to shine as lights in the world. We are to be the lights that draw them to the Savior, and we cannot be that if we are not walking worthy of the gospel. So we have this theme of walking worthy. Our walk as children of the gospel, as the those who have been redeemed by the gospel. And then, um, fourthly, there is this theme of Walking in unity, walking in unity, and we find this, um, you know, he, he kicks us off in, again in verse 27, he says that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And again, in chapter 4, he comes back to that, and we'll look at that in a few minutes here. But unity, 
among the believers, and this this seemed to be a, a problem in the uh, in the in the Philippian church in chapter two. He says, "Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem others better than himself." And then he goes on to present. Uh, the example of the Lord Jesus Christ says, let this mind, verse 5 of chapter 2, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, which who being in the form of God did not consider robbery and so on and so forth. And he, so he presents this image of the humble, the reality of the, hum, the humility of Christ, how he was humiliated. And he says, we all need to humble ourselves and work towards Unity. So we see this theme of unity. This was a problem in that church. It is a problem in the church today. This problem of lack of oneness of mind among believers and how uh, that really detracts from our testimony to the world at large. So we see this theme of working in unity. And then a fifth theme we find is one of rejecting the flesh and striving for a more intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 3 and verse 3. He says... Um, Chapter 3 and verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. He said, don't be bound by the flesh. Don't have confidence in the flesh. Verse 7 of chapter 3. What things were gained to me, those, these I have counted loss. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. He has this yearning to know Christ, to, 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 to have an, a more intense intimacy in his relationship with Christ, to Partake in the sufferings of Christ, the fellowship of his suffering, to be conformed to the death of Christ, so that he may, uh, that bond between him, that intimacy between him and Christ may continue to grow. And this is something, again, that comes forward as a theme. In verse 14, he talks about, I press toward the goal for the price of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Pressing on to the goal. Verse 12, he says, I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. He says, Christ has laid hold of me for a purpose. It wasn't just to save me and make me his child, but he has a purpose for me. And I press on, I want to press on, I am pressing on, so that I may lay hold of that purpose for which Christ has saved me and made me his child. Rejecting the flesh and striving for a more intimate relationship with Christ. So these are again (coughs) another theme that we see spread out throughout the book of Philippians. And then finally, the sixth theme is that of living as citizens of heaven. Verse Chapter 3 and verse 20, he says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven. Uh, he goes back to verse 19. At the end, he says, he talks about a group of people who set their mind on earthly things. He calls us to... To, to go away from setting our minds on earthly things, but rather to have our minds set on heavenly things. Because we have a citizenship. Uh, we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We are citizens, uh, or, uh, heavenly citizens, and we ought to wait eagerly for our Savior. And not only that, but our life here needs to reflect our citizenship as the children uh, of God, as the the saved ones of the Lord Jesus Christ. So living as citizens of heaven. And then he closed out that section in chapter 4, verse 1. He says, Therefore, my beloved and longed for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. Stand fast. It means don't get knocked off your feet. Focus on Focusing on earthly things knocks us off our feet. What does the life of a heavenly citizen really look like? And that's what we want to look at today in the rest of chapter 4. The, the Apostle Paul here, he presents a few characteristics of the life of a heavenly citizen. What does the life of a heavenly citizen look like? What does the life of a believer in Christ characterize by? What are the things about the way he acts and the way he thinks and the way he conducts himself? What does that really look like? 
both in terms of his relationship with God, his relationship with other people, and he and looks at all that. And I came up with uh, going through this, we can see sort of seven points here uh, that are seven characteristics of the life of a heavenly citizen. So let's just look at each of those one by one. So we are called to be heavenly citizens. We are heavenly citizens. We ought to uh, realize that our citizenship is in heaven. We ought to eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. But while we are waiting, our life here, we are ambassadors for Christ. We are to reflect uh, this, our citizenship in heaven in uh, the way we live our lives. And he, and he gives us here seven points or seven characteristics. The first one we see in uh, verses 2 and 3 of chapter 4. And that is that the life of a heavenly citizen is characterized by unity and oneness with your fellow citizens of the kingdom. A life that is characterized by unity and oneness with your fellow citizens of the kingdom. And he uses the example of two, uh, two believers here, Euodia and Syntyche, who are two sisters in the church. And he says, I implore, verse 2, Euodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. So we see here that there are two sisters here and he tells us something about them. He says, I also urge you, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So these are two sisters from what we can tell about them. They labored with Paul. They were, they were uh, co-laborers of his in the gospel. And, and perhaps they were very gifted Sisters, they were very capable, and we don't know the details of what um, exactly was the issue between them uh, here. It doesn't really tell us that, uh, but perhaps it had even to do with, with good things such as ministry. Maybe they were having a conflict about their ministries that they were involved in. Maybe it was personality conflict. We really don't know. But regardless, we find that these two sisters were not of the same mind in the Lord. There was disunity they were going in different directions they were quarreling with each other perhaps and uh, both of them loved the lord uh, but they had a mutual dislike for each other for some reason and it could have been due to disagreements over ministry and paul here implores them you know in different transitions uses the word urge or plead uh, or or entreat it's almost like he was begging them to be of the same mind in the lord and, uh, you know, this phrase, the mind, if you go back to chapter 2, we find it there, right? And he's talking of the Lord Jesus, says, let this mind be in you, verse 5, chapter 2, which was also in Christ Jesus. He's saying, be humble, let this mind, have this oneness in mind, let the mind of Christ be in you, to humble yourself, and to, uh, you know, not, uh, if we go back there to chapter 2, just as he says, you know, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. And Paul is urging these other believers there. He says, you, um, uh, coming back to chapter 4, he says, I urge you also, true companion, help these women. Help them to resolve this issue because it is not beneficial to the kingdom. It is not the way that citizens of the kingdom should be living. I implore you to Work with them. I urge you to help them. You know, as fellow citizens of the heavenly kingdom, we should be helping to resolve conflicts. And, and just to take a minute and talk about this uh, matter of, of conflicts in the church. You know, there's all kinds of reasons. And here he's talking about two sisters, but whether it's conflicts between sisters or brothers, you know, there's all kinds of silly things that, that cause conflicts. You know, I remember a few years ago, there were two sisters uh, right here in CBF who, uh, you know, most of you were not here, so you don't have to try to figure out who it was or anything. You couldn't anyway. Uh, but, you know, they got into a conflict. And what was the reason? You know, one walked by and ignored the other on a Sunday morning and didn't say hello to them. Okay? And that became a big issue. You know, simple things. You know, why didn't you go up and say hello to, to her? Well, why would I do that? She ignored me. You know? So there are all kinds of things. Sometimes we get caught up in, in little cliques and, and, you know, we don't want to talk to people over there because they belong to this group or, you know, they belong to Raven's group or I'm just picking names, okay? Or Jobin's group or Benji's group or, you know, oh, no, I don't want to deal with him. He, he belongs to that group, right? Okay, we have all kinds of things that go on from time to time. You know, little, little conflicts. You know, the, uh, in, uh, I think it is in, in Ecclesiastes, it talks about the uh, Song of Solomon, the... Um, 
the little foxes that um, that ruin the the vines right john the little foxes you know it's only little things little small little things that cause these kind of conflicts and we don't know what was happening with these two sisters yodia and sintiki maybe it was a small thing maybe it was that one was prospering in the ministry and the other was not maybe one was seeing fruit and the other was not we we don't know but it could be things about the ministry it could be things about their personality it could be that they didn't you know they just didn't get along but you know these are small small things you know that go on in the church life that cause all kinds of conflicts that cause groupism that cause people to divide that cause some people not to talk to others that cause people to uh, develop little cliques you know and and each clique doesn't talk to the other and, and creates disunity but that is not what is to characterize our life that is not the characteristic of a life of a person who is a citizen of the kingdom of god of the kingdom of christ whose citizenship is in heaven and and you know he uh, it's 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 really beautiful the way paul closes he says um, you know with clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life he's reminding them and saying look all of you you know everybody seated here your names are in the book of life you're all going to go to heaven and you're all going to spend eternity together why can you not get along on this earth you're going to spend all of eternity you know what eternity is we cannot even grasp what eternity is because we are bound by time but it is forever it has no beginning it has no end we will be spending it together because our, our our names are in the book of life for the sake of unity for the sake of our testimony for the sake of uh, of of being more effective for the lord let's set aside these petty differences that we have you know how is our relationship with our fellow believers in the church is there anybody that you can talk to don't talk to because of something that happened so long ago you know i encourage you to to resolve that i encourage you to get to that level of unity with everybody in the church and he says urge you also true companions help these women you know all of us need to help each other to build up this unity you know very often somebody comes and says you know i have a problem with so and so you know we just sort of pile on that right our tendency is yeah you know i also had a problem she's that way you know she did this to me you know what she did last week you know and we just sort of keep adding a little bit of masala right to that and just feed that that feeling of um, of disunity you know just feed it right uh, but paul says here i urge you also help these women who labored with me there are people who labored with me there are people who love the lord as much as you and i do help them to resolve these issues you know we are all heading uh, to eternal life together you know why can't we be of the same mind in the lord so i encourage you you know if if there are any pent up conflicts issues that you have with anybody you know it's important that we resolve that that that, that we are, we are always watchful for it you know it's, it's especially when church starts growing and you have so many people that there's always a room for little little groups and little conflicts and and things to come up and we need to as believers as citizens of uh, of heaven be on guard against these so number one you know uh, the kingdom life for a citizen the life of a citizen of a kingdom is is characterized by unity and oneness with your fellow citizens secondly we see in um, uh, in uh, chapter 4 and verse 4 rejoice in the lord always again i will say rejoice very simple and yet so difficult the life of a citizen of heaven is to be characterized by rejoicing in all circumstances we all understand the word rejoice it means to be glad it means to be joyful you know and just to give you a little sense of how scripture talks about this let's turn to a couple of passages matthew 18 matthew chapter 18 and verse um, 13 and uh, uh, and talking here about the the lost sheep let's go to 12 what do you think if a man has a 100 sheep and one of them goes astray does he not leave the 999 and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying verse 13 and if he should find it assuredly i say to you he rejoices more over that sheep than over the 99 that did not go astray it's speaking here about abundant joy the joy that a shepherd who loses this one sheep has when he searches the mountains and he finds that sheep and he brings him home he has that that intense joy that abundant joy um luke chapter 10 and verse 20 
All of these passages use the same word, rejoice. Luke 10 and verse 20. He says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. So this is where he, he sends out the 70 and they come back and say, even the demons are subject to us uh, in your name. And so he says, you know, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. The joy that one has when you know that your name is written in heaven, that you have been saved and you have been given that eternal life. <coughs> Uh, Acts chapter 8 <coughs> Acts chapter 8 and verse um, <coughs> Can someone give me a glass of water please? Acts 8 and 39 <coughs> And this is talking about the eunuch Can someone read Acts 8 and 39? <coughs> yeah, go ahead Yeah, the eunuch did not see him again, but he went on his way rejoicing. And we all know the story of the eunuch. You know, he was searching, he was looking for answers, he found the answers, and he says, what hinders me from being baptized? And he was baptized, and he was a new man, and he went home rejoicing. This is the kind of joy that the Apostle Paul is saying that we ought to have when? When things are going well? No. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. And as if for emphasis, he says, again I will say, Rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. This joy has to be a characteristic of us at all times. You know, we believers, we Christians ought to be the most joyful people on earth. No matter what our circumstances are. You know, we don't have enough. We don't have this. We don't have that. We're sick. We're going through all this. We still need to have that inner joy because, you know, we have been saved. We will spend eternity with Christ. We have that glorious hope. And that is sufficient for us to have a heart that rejoices at all times. It's very sad that very often some of some Christians are the most miserable people. You know, they're always moaning and groaning and whining and complaining. And, uh, you know, I sometimes have this problem with my, with my kids, you know. As soon as we walk back into the house, uh, you know, one of my kids, they, oh, it's so hot. It's so hot. You know, uh, you know deal with it, you know. Yeah, it's hot. You know, go turn the fan on. Do something. We have so many things to complain about. You know, I don't have this. I don't have that. Oh, my back is aching. You know, most miserable people. Isn't that true? We find all kinds of things to complain about. Rejoice in the Lord always. You know, look at look at what really matters. You know, what really matters. My my eternity is secure. I've been saved from my sin. The Lord has blessed me. The Lord gives me. He meets my every need. He has promised to never leave me nor forsake me. Let's separate from the things that don't matter from what really matters. The citizen of heaven. If you are a heavenly citizen, your life needs... People need to see a special joy. They need to be asking you, you know, how can you be so joyful when... You know, you're going through this difficult circumstance in your life when you're going through this illness or your child is ill or your parent is about to die or whatever might be the the circumstance you're going to. How can you still be so joyful and so content when you're going through this difficulty? Rejoice in the Lord always. He He doesn't mince any words here. He says always, always. What is, you know, what does always not include? There's nothing that it excludes. Every time, at all times, if you're sick, you rejoice. If you're healthy, you rejoice. If you're rich, you rejoice. If you're poor, you rejoice. If you're going through all kinds of problems in your life, you rejoice. You know, if you get a traffic ticket, uh, get called over by the policeman, I've seen some of you, you know, when that happens, rejoice. <laughs> you know, circumstance shouldn't matter. And we looked a little bit more about not being anxious. But, but Paul is very, very clear here, isn't he? Rejoice in the Lord always. You know, are you a rejoicing Christian? When people look at you, do they, do they get that sense of joyfulness just in the way you talk and the way you approach life? Or are you always complaining and, 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 and just murmuring and, you know, like those children of Israel, you know, when they, 
when they when they were in Egypt, they were complaining that they were having a tough time, and then they brought them out. They were happy for a while, and then you know they were saying, "Oh, we don't have any food. We you know the the onions in Egypt or whatever the vegetables in Egypt were much much nicer." Then they they said, "Oh, well, you know, the God gave them manna. They weren't happy with that. They wanted meat. He gave them meat. They weren't happy with that." You know, just murmuring and murmuring and murmuring. You know, that's not the way our life should be, right? We need to be rejoicing. So a citizen, a citizen of heaven's life is meant to be characterized or should be characterized by rejoicing in all circumstances. That's number two. Number three, let's move on. <coughs> it is to be a life that is characterized by graciousness and gentleness towards others. So verse five, let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Now the word gentleness here, uh, if you look at different translations, you'll see the word forbearance or reasonable or moderate. And I think he's call, uh, talking here, if you go to 1 Timothy 3 and 3, uh, he talks about the, uh, I'm not going to turn there, but it's the, the qualification of elders and deacons. And he says that they should be gentle and not quarrelsome. In Titus 3, 2, he says he should be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. You know, 1 Peter 2 and 18, he talks about uh, the servants uh, submitting to their masters uh, who are not just those who are good and gentle, but who are also harsh. So it's the opposite, you know, gentleness here that he's talking about is the opposite of harshness. It's the opposite of uh, being quarrelsome. You know, it's talking about forbearance. Uh, basically, to summarize it, it, it is an attitude of forbearance and humility. You know, not quarreling, moderated in your response, um, being fair rather than seeking personal advantage, not harsh. And what is the scope here? It is to all men. So what he's saying here is that, you know, we have all kinds of opportunity to be harsh to people, to get irritated at people, to get angry at them, to try to correct them, to try to straighten them out and all these kind of things. He said, hold off, you know, be gentle, be forbearing. You know, bear one another's burdens, bear with each other, be patient. We talked about love. You know, when you love somebody, you're patient, you're tolerant of their shortcomings. So our life as believers is to be characterized by graciousness and gentleness towards others. You know, how often we are so quick to take offense because somebody said something to us, they didn't address us the right way or they said the wrong thing or they said something to offend us or whatever. You know, we're so quick to take offense. That's what he's getting at here. Be gentle. Let your gentleness be known to all men. Be known for gentleness. This should be characteristic of your behavior. You know, the Lord is at hand. The Lord is coming soon. There's no time to be getting into these kind of conflicts and unnecessary, um, you, know, uh, um, you know, unnecessary conflicts with, with each other. Our life should be one that's characterized by graciousness and gentleness towards others. So let's move on to point number four. Uh, which is that uh, that our life as citizens of heaven is to be characterized is should not be characterized by anxiety and worry but by thankfulness prayer and the peace of god verse 6 be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your request be made known to god and the peace of god which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through christ jesus be anxious for what for nothing so this goes along with being a rejoicing Christian. You should not be an anxious, worried Christian. You know, be anxious for nothing. We should have zero worry. I know that's tough, but that's what we're called to. Our life should not be characterized by worry and pessimism and thinking that the worst is going to happen. What should be our response to anxiety? It's very simple. He says, by take your request to God with prayer and supplication and what? And thankfulness. Thankfulness to, for what? For all the wonderful things that God has done for you, for the great salvation you have, for all the, the ways that God has taken care of you in the past, be thankful for that. When you come to God and immediately your worry will go away, whether he does what you want or not. And what is the outcome? The outcome is that the peace, when you do what? When you come with prayer and supplication and let your request be made known to God, then the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And I'm talking about not just big things, but even small things. You know, I remember when we were on this, on this trip, um, you know, we had, we had flown from, uh, you know, me and, and seven, the seven kids, you know, we had flown from, um, um, from uh, Houston to Atlanta. 
and uh, and I had arranged to rent a big van. I think I sent you guys a picture of of the van, um, you know, for us to travel, and we and we needed that. I mean, I had there were eight of us, all his luggage and everything. So we came to the the rental counter, and um, and this lady, uh, it was eight eight o'clock past eight o'clock, eight thirty at night, and uh, you know we had to get get somewhere. Uh, people were waiting for us to for dinner and all this kind of thing, and and the lady says, "Well, I don't know. We've had a lot of rain. You know, we're short on these vehicles." And and I started getting a little upset, and then I cooled off a little bit. And then she said, uh, "You'll have to. You know, we might have to wait 30 to 40 minutes before I can get one of these vehicles." You know, and I said, "So will I get it in 40 minutes?" Uh, he goes, "Well, I can't be sure about that." And so the anxiety started building up. You know, oh, what am I going to do? You know, I got. All the kids, I got all this luggage, it's 8.30 at night, how are we going to get there? We've got to go another 40 kilometers, you know, how we, or 40 miles, how are we going to get there? Um, and anxiety started coming, and then, you know, I just said, and, and Josiah was sitting next to me, and I told Josiah, you know, Josiah, um, you know, we're having trouble getting this van, why don't you pray? And, and he gave a few little, oh, if I pray, how can I pray now? I'm sitting in the middle of the, uh, I said, no, just, just, you just close your eyes and pray. And he prayed, and... Uh, just after he prayed, you know, I, I, I went back to the lady and she had found the van, okay? She found one, that one went away, there was another one available and we were gone, within 10 minutes we were gone, you know? Try it, you know? Take your request to God. I'm not saying every time you pray the van's going to show up, okay? <laughs> but, but, but it was good, you know, he prayed and I said, hey, Josiah, guess what? You prayed and we got the van, you know? Um, small things, little things, big things. You know, our God is a God who hears our prayers, you know. Even the Lord, you know, when he was, uh, you know, in Hebrews, he talks about how the Lord approached, the Lord Jesus approached his father with prayers and supplications, you know. And what did he pray for? What did he pray for, John? John sitting right in front of me, so. You prayed that, let this cup be removed. Was the cup removed? No. But it says that God heard him. You know, God hears our prayers. And he gave him the peace to go through with what he had to go through. The peace that surpasses all understanding. You know, this is a problem that, it's a big problem among us. You know, anxiety, we worry about everything. We worry about our job, we worry about our grades, we worry about our, uh, you know, marriage of our kids. You know, we worry about uh, money, we worry about all kinds of things. You, you, you know, you can fill up the list. Right? Worry about how we're going to get from here to there and all kinds of things, right? So many things to worry about. But the word of God is very clear. You know, we as believers, we as heavenly citizens, we are to be anxious for nothing. Nothing. You know, what part of nothing do we not understand? It is a sin to be anxious, it is a sin to worry, it is showing lack of faith in God. What do you do when you worry? You lose, you know, your mood goes off, you start snapping at everybody around you, right? That's what I do. You can ask my kids, okay? But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, and then the peace of God. You know, we will have this experience of the peace of God in our lives, you know, if we are anxious for nothing. So, citizen of the kingdom has a life that is not characterized by anxiety and worry, but by thankfulness, prayer, and the peace of God. Let's move on. The next point is, um, uh, we, we read this verse 8. Brethren, whatever things, finally brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. There's a long list there. The things that we should meditate on. So life of a child of the kingdom, a citizen of, the, of heaven, is characterized by a focus on virtuous and pure things. A focus on virtuous and pure things. He talks about true. True is what's not false. Noble means honorable, honest, reverent, just. It means right or righteous. God-honoring, upright. Pure means chaste and clean. Lovely means acceptable and pleasing. Of a good report means something that is commendable, admirable, of good repute. Virtuous means excellence, something that is, that is morally good, that, 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 that has achieved moral excellence and praiseworthy. And this is a very, very high standard that the Apostle Paul 
has given here. But we need to apply this standard to what we read. We need to apply it to um, the things that we think about. We need to apply it to what we look at, what we watch, what we see, whether it's movies or whatever. We need to apply it to what we listen to, the music that we listen to. We need to apply it to our activities. We need to apply it to the kind of friends that we keep. We need to apply it to every area of our life. You know, where do we spend our time? What do we do with, with our time most of it? Is it doing things that are true and just and pure and lovely and of good report? Is that how we spend our time? Doing things that qualify under these criteria? <coughs> and he says here, the things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do and the God of peace will be with you. You know, we had to follow godly examples. They were to follow the example they got from Paul. Do we have good examples of how we are trying to live our lives, the direction that we want to go in our life, good, godly, virtuous examples. We have to find good examples of other citizens of heaven who are living a God-honoring life. But how, what are we to focus on? We are to have a life that is characterized uh, by a focus on these virtuous and pure things. And, you know, we need to each of us apply this to ourselves because... There's so many things that we get into, you know, whether it's music, whether it's movies, whether it's, you know, things that, that we watch, whether it's, and, and all of these things are polluting our minds because the things that we are engaged in, where we spend our time are not virtuous. They are not God-honoring. They are not truthful. They are not righteous. They are not noble. They don't meet any of these criteria. Dwell on these things. Meditate on these things. Spend your time on these things. What things? Things that are lovely things that are of good report, things that are virtuous, things that are praiseworthy, things that, that feed your spirit rather than your flesh, things that contribute towards your spiritual growth rather than pulling you down. You know, many, uh, many young, young people are, are getting involved in things like pornography and things like that because of what they're watching, because of what they're looking at, because they can't keep their minds clean. You know, you always need to replace those dirty things with what is good? You know, what are we spending our time reading? Whether it's on the internet or in books or whatever it might be the case. This is the kind of life that we have to have. If we focus on this, then we will grow. And we will grow in, in our walk uh, and walk according to the gospel. Let's move on uh, verse 10. The kingdom life or the life of a citizen of heaven is one that is characterized by contentment. It says here, not verse 11, not that... Um, I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. And this goes along in, with, with the whole thing about rejoicing and not being anxious. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Contentment. He says here, Paul says, I have learned to be content. It's something I had to teach myself. It doesn't come naturally. You know, we in our fallen state, we are hardwired towards discontentment. But we can teach ourselves to be content. I have learned to be content in every state, in humility and in prosperity. When I'm full and when I'm hungry. When I'm uh, uh, abounding and when I'm suffering from need. You know, First Timothy 6, 8 said that if we have food and clothing with these we should be content. Hebrews 13.5 says we should be content with what we have. How do we handle lack of contentment? How do we handle uh, lack of plenty in our life? Are we content with our current situation, whether it's our financial situation or our whatever situation that we are going through? Not just how do we handle lack of something, but how do we handle it when we have so much? You know, some of us may have plenty. We may have a lot of money. We may have... Uh, a, a lot of abundance. How do we handle that? You know, we like that. How we like the the rich fool who wanted to tear down the barns and build bigger ones so that he could accumulate more and more and more. Are we trying to accumulate more and more because we are not content, even though we have so much? Are we content with spending less on ourselves and more for others, or are we using it to expand our lifestyle? The citizen of heaven is content with whatever circumstance that God is allowing you to go through. Because God is sovereign. Because God knows. Because God will give you 
you know, freedom from anxiety because God will give you that strength to rejoice through that circumstance, a life that is characterized by contentment. And then the final point is that um, the life of a citizen of heaven is characterized by giving to the needs of others, sharing financially with the fellow citizens of the kingdom. Verse 14 onwards, he says, um, he's talking here about, and he's commending the Philippians because they have given to his needs. He says that no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. They were the only ones who supported him. For even in Thessalonica, you sent, and once again, uh, and once and again, more than once they sent for my necessities. Not that, and look at this, he tells us a few things here about giving. He says that, um, I, not that I seek the gift. He says, it's not that I want what you're giving me, but uh, I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. The fruit that abounds to your account. What is that telling us? It's saying that when you give, it results in fruit abounding to the account of the giver. Okay, It's like laying up the same principle as laying up treasures in heaven. When we give to the needs of our fellow believers, when we give to the needs of the Lord and the Lord's workers, we are laying up treasures in heaven. There is fruit abounding to your account. And then he goes on to say, uh, verse um, 18, chapter 4 and verse 18, Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. When we give, it is actually an act of sacrifice. It is a spiritual sacrifice. As as priests, you know, we are making a spiritual sacrifice. When we give um, uh, sacrificially, there's a sweet-smelling savor that is pleasing to God. God is well-pleased when we give to meet the needs of our fellow believers. And then he goes on and says, My God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. You know, these Philippian believers, they were not very well-off people. They were not very rich. But it says that out of their need, they gave. The churches of Macedonia, they gave. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, you'll see more about this, about their giving. Uh, they gave to the other churches, not, you know, even out of their poverty, they gave. And he says, you don't worry. When you give, even though you don't have, God, my God will supply all your need according to his riches. He is a rich God uh, and he will supply. And when we give sacrificially, we can be assured that God will supply our needs. And very often, you know, our giving is hindered by our doubt. You know, oh, I got to keep some because I got to do this. I got to meet my needs. I got to, you know, feed my kids. I got to do this and that and the other. And we, we don't have faith that the Lord will provide for us in the future. And therefore, we don't give. Are you a generous giver? You know, a citizen of heaven is to be characterized by a giving spirit, a generous, a spirit of generosity. Do you consider the needs of your fellow believers before spending on your own wants, you know, and I get very irritated by this every time I go to the U.S. because I see my, my fellow believers there and the lifestyles that they live and the cars that they have in their, in their driveways. Oh, my goodness, you know. I don't know why you need a BMW in your driveway, you know, when a small little car will do, uh, a wagoner will do. Thank you. <laughs> or whatever the equivalent is. But, you know, BMW, SUV, all kinds of cars and big houses. You know, so many believers who've sunk all of their money into property. Instead of giving to the needs of others while there are people starving, while there are, you know, workers out there who can't pay a few thousand rupees to send their kids to school. It's a very sad situation. We are to give generously to the needs of others. Stand fast in the Lord. Don't get knocked off your feet. Live the life of a citizen of heaven, not one whose mind is earthly. Be a heavenly citizen. Is your life characterized by unity and oneness with your fellow believers? Are you able to rejoice in all circumstances? Are you gracious and forbearing in dealing with others, even those who are very irritating? Are you free of anxiety and worry? Are you able to cast your worries and your cares on the Lord? Are you able to uh, take that to Him in prayers and supplication? Are you engaged and focused on virtuous things which lead you to a more intimate relationship with Christ? Are you content with your current circumstances? Or are you constantly seeking more 
from an earthly perspective? Are you a sacrificial giver to the needs of others? Does your life reflect whether you are an earthly citizen or a heavenly citizen? We are to walk worthy of the gospel. And these are the kind of things that when they become second nature in our lives, when they begin these six things, when they start characterizing our day-to-day life, we will be more and more living as citizens of the kingdom to which we really belong, citizens of heaven. I trust that the Lord will enable us to do that. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you, Lord, for your word. We want to thank you, Lord, for speaking to us. We want to thank you for instructing us in, in righteousness. We want to thank you, Father, that, <coughs> that um, you give us such clear instruction on how we are to live our lives. Lord, I pray that each of us would examine our lives, Lord, and be able to apply it, Lord, apply these words, Lord, to see where we are falling short, Father. Uh, are we really contented, Lord? Are we really people who are willing to give and give sacrificially? Are we uh, rejoicing at all times, Lord? Are we um, free of worry, Lord? Are we having less and less worry and anxiety in our lives, Lord, whether it's about our jobs or our uh, financial needs or, or whatever it might be, Lord? I pray, O oh Lord, that these things might characterize that unity, Lord. There would be unity among our, um, uh, within our uh, group here, Lord, that that we may learn to love each other, Lord, that if we have conflicts with anyone, Lord, that we would encourage each other to resolve those, Lord, and to love everyone uh, and, and have that spirit of unity and oneness of mind so that you would be glorified. Lord, we thank you again. I want to commit everyone in this church into your hands. I pray, Lord, that you will help us to walk in a way, Lord, that is worthy of our calling, worthy of the gospel, that brings honor to you, that, that allows our lives to shine forth as lights, to those around us, Lord, that when they see that rejoicing spirit in us, they will be drawn to the Savior through our lives, Father. We give you all the glory and the praise. We ask these things in the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, before we go to announcements, um, we have a, a, a dedication. So I'm going to ask uh, uh, Rebbe to come up, and then uh, we have Starlet and Joanna with... Uh,